Gracious God, we pray that you would use these gifts to build your church, to spread your word, and to help those in need. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please remain standing now as we read God's word. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jude chapter 2 while I get everything situated. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm actually taking notes to see who did that. Okay, Jude, starting in verse 20. I'll be reading from the NAS. Please follow along. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning. And because of your great promises, uh, we are expecting good things. Uh, I pray that you would use this, Lord, to minister to our hearts, to minister to my heart, and that you would meet the needs of your people today and strengthen them in this walk of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This uh, sermon at this point is a little bit redundant. It amazes me. Um, I've mentioned before that we are really... A volunteer organization here, uh, very much so. You know, Minda gives us some of her time, but for the most part, we're volunteers. And I turned in this sermon title two, three weeks ago. Uh, not sermon notes, not anything else, just a title and a passage. And if you go back through the worship bulletin from this morning and listen to the prayers, we have covered a good bit of this. Okay, now I'm going to go through it anyway, because I took the time to write it out. Okay. But it really is amazing how God puts these things together and uses his people with different gifts. And between Minda, Zach, and Glenn and myself this morning, how he has orchestrated some of what we're going to look at and what we're going to study. So, the book of Jude. Which one of you here has heard a sermon from the book of Jude in your lifetime? Okay, I see, you know, five, six, seven hands. I never have. And I have been in the church for my whole lifetime. I remember being at RTS one morning, and I just mentioned to someone in a class I was in on New Testament that I'd never heard a sermon on Jude, and he said someone had just spoken on that in chapel the day before, so I missed it. The one time in my life, I missed it. Um, I'm intrigued by Jude, and admittedly, not all portions of the scripture carry the same significance as others, though all are important, um, but some are lesser studied. They're neglected by many people. Um, And yet they can be interesting if we take the time to go back and go over them. And that's where I find with the book of Jude. I was told one time before I was teaching a youth class deciding what to teach, they said just teach from the book of Judges. Um, Youth like the book of Judges. There's a lot of blood and guts. There's a lot of action. There's heroes like the Marvel comic books, the strongest man who ever lived, you know. All these things in the book of Judges. So that, that seems to be key for youth 
But I keep coming back to Jude. And at first, I didn't know why. I still don't know why necessarily, but it's short. It's somewhat seemingly insignificant at first. It's kind of tucked in there before Revelation. Doesn't get a whole lot of attention. But Jude is fascinating to me. Just, just listen to just a couple things about it. Um, it is short, yet it's dense. Um, the author of the book of Jude is probably the brother of Jesus, which makes it unique in and of itself and makes you just wonder, hmm, what about this book? As far as content goes, there are bad guys listed here. There are angels, both good and bad, angels caught up in sin and awaiting a judgment as they sit in prison. There's destruction of cities when they mention Sodom and Gomorrah. There's many Old Testament references that bring to our minds stories we heard in Sunday school. There's extra-biblical references. There are two different quotes from two different books that are not in the Bible, and yet they are included here in the canonical book of Jude. And that by itself makes it intriguing to somebody who's going to study or give it any kind of detailed study at all. It's theologically dense. There is an awful lot of the sovereignty of God in the book of Jude. At the very beginning in verse 1, it says, To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. When it comes and talks about this other group of people, these false teachers, it talks about how they were marked out from the beginning and how their presence among us has been foretold by the apostles. All these things orchestrated by God and brought together in time. There's an awful lot of sovereignty there. And then the one thing that always comes back to me, that intrigues me, is verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is not the letter Jude intended to write. Does that intrigue you at all? I kind of wonder what was on Jude's mind. I would love to see the other letter. I, I, I just have an interest in antiquities and lost things that are found. And, and I would love to know, well, what was on Jude's mind? What did he want to discuss about our common salvation? But Jude ran into a problem because he saw danger among the people of God. He saw false believers or false teachers coming in among them. And, and as is the case, as is often the case, that causes trouble. That, that can lead some people astray. It can cause some people to doubt. It can cause all sorts of uncertainties and instabilities in the church. And so he felt it necessary to write to the people instead about sharing something in their common salvation and tell them to contend for the faith. And I think when we get to verses 20 and on, he gives us instructions how to contend for the faith. He has this interruption where he talks about the danger that, that they were facing. But then he brings us back and gives us instruction. What does it mean? What does it look like to contend for the faith? And we're going to get to that. But kind of like Jude, this is not the sermon I expected to preach either. Um, I thought I had this outline worked out two, three weeks ago. And I'm going to use it because I had it worked out two, three weeks ago. But I can't get past when I come to our portion in verse 20 to the very first word, but... I'm always intrigued by but. But is one of those grammatical markers. It's a conjunction and it's a contrastive conjunction. So conjunctions, if you remember your grammar at all, draw things together. They link things. So what came before is connected to what comes after. It's a conjunction. But yet it's a contrastive conjunction. So it sets what came before at odds with what comes after. It says there's something in opposition here, whether it be an idea or a theory or a teaching, whatever it is. And I was just kind of consumed this past week with what but is contrasting in the book of Jude. 
So before we get to our main outline, I need to talk about but. But is contrasting here two groups of people. Two groups of people. He's contrasting the people of God whom Jude is writing this letter to and giving instructions for. And he's contrasting the ungodly or the wicked, the wolves among the sheep. Um, and, and it just brought to my mind, and I was consumed by it this week, that God makes distinctions among people, and it has ever been so. And it's important for us to recognize it, understand it, and it's important for you to know which group of people you belong to. Because eternity hangs in the balance. You know, the people of God are blessed more than they can even imagine. And their future is more beautiful than they can even comprehend. But the people who are not, the people who are in this other group, contrasted with the people of God, they are in more danger than they can imagine. And their future does not hold blessedness. And Jude is talking about these two groups of people because they're side by side in our text. This should not surprise us. From the beginning, God has made distinctions among people. Ever since sin entered into the world in Genesis 3.15, he said the seed of the woman will be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. We see all of humanity divided into two groups of people. And God has made distinctions among them. We get very shortly after that to the time of Noah when it says all the earth was as wicked as it could be. Their hearts were full of evil all the time, and yet Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah and his family out of all the earth, rescued from destruction, God has made a distinction among people. And later on in the time of darkness, he calls a man named Abraham. Abraham, probably a moon worshiper, but called out of that darkness, made God's own special possession. And he said, walk before me, I will be your God and you will be my people. God chose But we emphasize the chose, and we forget who was not. There are two groups of people, and God makes a distinction. Abraham's son, Isaac, not his first son, but Isaac was the child of promise, and not Ishmael, who was sent away from the presence of the Lord. Isaac's son, Jacob and Esau. God says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Israel was rescued from Egypt. Israel, not someone else. Not all other people, a group of people. God has made distinctions among people. Later within Israel, David was chosen. Saul was rejected. The exiles at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, the exiles were the chosen of God. He removed them from the land and protected them there. And those that were left were judged and destroyed. God has made a distinction among people. It's not just an Old Testament idea. We see it in the New Testament where Jesus himself, who came to die for his sheep, he talks about in the last day on the judgment, there, all people will be gathered and they will be separated into the sheep and the goats and the sheets are to enter into the kingdom. Eternal blessedness, whereas the goats go forward into judgment. God has always made a distinction among people. And if you are one of God's people, if you have come to him, Trusting in Christ as the only yet sufficient payment for your sin. Then you know something of the blessedness of God. You only know a taste of it. You don't know its fullness yet, but it's coming. And your future is one to be hoped for, to be sought after, to be waited upon. 
to look forward to. But if you know not God, then you remain as you were born under the wrath and curse of God. Because God makes distinctions among people. And for you, the future holds a judgment. But fear not. I love this part. (laughs) There is good news for you. This God of judgment is also a God of mercy. The book of Ezekiel tells us that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather that they turn from sin and live eternally. He's talking about a transfer from the first group of people to the second, made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you'll turn from your sin, trust in him, then you too can be counted among the number of the redeemed. You too can be rescued. All made possible by the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not reject a sinner who turns to him. And so before we get further in our text, just let me say, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. A transfer is possible. And now, you children of God, Jude has written to you this day. As I said, he says this letter is written to those who are called, loved in God, kept for Jesus Christ. And then he tells us that we must contend for the faith. But what does that look like? Contend for the faith. I'm afraid sometimes in in our Christian activism we get the idea it means just picket signs and shouting down some other crowd with the loudest voice. And that's not it. First and foremost, we are called to walk in such a way. We are called to adorn the gospel with deeds of mercy and love. We are told to continue in the faith and not be swept aside or led astray. Um, That is how we contend for the faith. First and foremost, we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, consistent with the gospel. And that's what we come to up here in verse 20. And so for the rest of our time together, I have just three points, naturally, right? We have to have three. But this helps us remember. So first, look to yourselves. Secondly, look to others. And then thirdly, look to him. Look to yourselves, look to others. And then look to him. Um, If you drop down to verse 21, the first command really, which is the central part of the first several verses here, says keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is not somehow a self-salvation or self-reliance. This is not somehow adding to the ministry of Christ who has died for your sins and qualified you into this, brought you within this group who will inherit the the things of God, the kingdom of God. But what this is, is a call to effort. Effort. Because the grace of God should lead to effort in the things of God, not laziness in the things of God. And here he is saying, you, keep yourselves in the form of a command. Work Work at it. Parallel, really, to Paul's teaching in Philippians 2, where he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work. See, it is the work of God that brings about a renewal that so inspires the individual and moves him so that he himself throws himself into the task. Grace is a living and active grace, and it works in the believer to the persevering of the saints and a perseverance in the things of God. So grace leads to effort, but that brings us to the question, how? What do we do? What are the specifics? What are some things that we are to give ourselves to as we keep ourselves in the love of God? Now, from verse 21, you back up to verse 20. And this describes what we are to do. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, 
We are told how to keep ourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. This is not a subjective thing. Many times when we talk about faith, we, we somehow think we have to muster up the ability to believe more. Um, and that's, but that's not what it's saying here. One, the term building talks about like building, uh, building the temple. It's kind of like building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's, it, it, it is similar to the pictures we see in scripture of us being built together as living stones into a temple for the Lord. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. But the idea of the faith here is, is it's a noun. It's a, it's a, it's an objective thing. Building yourselves up in the faith is building yourselves up in the teachings of the apostles and prophets that we saw in verse 3 that was handed down once and for all. In other words, building yourselves up in the faith means attendance to the teachings of the word of God. And let me go on and I will come back to that. But the content within the scriptures, which is the deposit of apostolic doctrine, is where you are being pointed to here, based upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and encoded, recorded in the scriptures. And added to that, building in the faith, is praying in the spirit. Now, praying in the spirit can also sound kind of mystical, and it's not. It's praying. Remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, and she said, where are we supposed to go worship? And he said, well, it doesn't matter where you worship, but true worshipers whom God seeks will worship in spirit and in truth. Worshiping in spirit, worshiping in the power or under the direction of or under the influence of, the leading, the guiding, the teaching of the spirit according to the truth, which again points us back to the word. And prayer in the spirit is analogous to this. Okay, it is not some mystical thing. It is not joining some monastery and learning some chants and some repetition. But it is praying in the power and under the guidance and the tutelage of the Spirit. And when we fall short there and don't know what to pray, then the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Because sometimes we are just at a loss. But here we have an emphasis on the Word of God and prayer. And in theological circles... These things are simply called the ordinary means of grace. And this is what Jude is directing his people to. In this fight that Jude is calling you to, he's pointing you to the ordinary means of grace. Now, picture in your mind, what do you think of when you say ordinary? Okay, plain, common, and if we had to admit, something not of much value. Right? During Solomon's time in Israel, the peak of the world kingdom, the earthly kingdom of Israel, it was said that Solomon brought in so much gold that silver was as common as stones and was considered ordinary. Okay, That's the attitude I'm afraid most of us have towards the ordinary means of grace. But that's not what this is. That is a misunderstanding of the definition. The ordinary means of grace are simply those things by which God takes care of, instructs, leads his people. This is what God ordinarily uses. But that does not make the means themselves of little value. That does not make them ordinary in the plain sense. And I can't can't stress this enough. I have studied this. Not just this verse. I've studied this book. Not like I should. I'm not 
not trying to put myself above anyone here, but I have paid attention to this um, for several years, for many years now. I'm more intrigued and fascinated by this book than when I started. I sometimes think what needs to be done is you need to dive in and push yourself through that initial cursory reading. And you need to to live with this. This is not an ordinary book. And I'm also concerned that I hear too many Christians too willing to spend big money, travel big distances, to go to the latest conference, to meet the latest Christian superstar. And yet, if you ask them how their private study is going, don't do much of that. So we're willing to do these things, we're willing to go to these places, and yet our Bibles gather dust. And yet, when Jude calls us to action and calls us to fight the fight of faith, he points us back to these things. Now, don't get me wrong, there are places for conferences. Okay, I have been to a couple in my life, I tend to avoid them, to be honest, for the most part, but that's me. But I have been to some, and I know their value. But if you're looking for this to recharge your batteries, why don't you try it at home first? These ordinary means are extraordinary. There is nothing simple and ordinary and invaluable or unvaluable about them. So we are directed to the ordinary means of grace. Do not, I wish I could stress this more, I have no words. Do not discount this. Commit yourself to it. It will pay off. So we are told, building ourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and then down to verse 22, I'm sorry, back to verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. The first two things we are told what to look to. We are told what to devote ourselves to. But now we're told something about the attitude we are to have. Waiting anxiously. These words are specifically talking about waiting and looking forward to these to the end, really, to the return of Christ, to that day. Seems like every time I preach, I come back to that day. But it can't be avoided. I'm just preaching what's in the scripture here. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. This is pointing to the day when our faith will be sight. When Christ himself, who has come once and gone away, will return. And we are to set our eyes upon that day. We are to cultivate a focus on that day. Remember Simeon in the book of Luke? Simeon was an old man, expected to be, thought to be an old man in the book of Luke in the time that Jesus was born. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the salvation of the Lord, until he saw God's Messiah. Think about that after centuries of waiting. Where is the Messiah? When is the Messiah going to come? And the old man was told, you won't die until you see him. Now that, in Simeon, had to foster faith, had to foster hope. Hope. And so each day he would go into the temple looking. You know, that that makes a difference on the attitude with which you live life. I have read stories of concentration camps, prison camps, jails, whatever, and the ones who survive to the end were the ones who had hope. The ones who lost all hope did not live well. And so you are also called to have hope, waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord to be revealed. He was sustained by hope in the arrival of the Messiah. And so we are to commit ourselves to the exercising of the means of grace and we are to have hope because the Lord himself who has come 
will come again. And your faith will be sight. Now, that is look to yourselves. Notice that look to yourselves itself is plural. So while it is directed to each of us individually, it even then is a reminder that we are not in this alone. And so not just as individuals, we are also then told to go and look to others. In verses 22 and 23, there's about three different groups of people that are mentioned. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And then some have mercy with fear, hating the garment polluted by the flesh. This first group, mercy to those who are doubting in verse 22. Mercy to those who are doubting. We all know people like this. Some who have been strong in the Lord for many years. But due to circumstances, sometimes age, sometimes illness, sometimes great loss, they go through a season of doubt. And they are not simply to be told to just get on with it. Okay? Our duty to someone like that is to show mercy. Um, these, these are not people who are to be disrespected, but they are to be encouraged. And trust me, if you yourself have not had a series or a season of doubt yet, you will. You will. And then our responsibility to you is the same. So to those who are doubting, show mercy. Give a kind word. Take the time and say a prayer. Do simply a random act of kindness and build that person up. Let your focus be on them for a time. Your brother or sister is hurting and in need of your help. And we are told, commanded by God... Show mercy to those who are doubting. Now, also looking to others, there is rescue for the endangered. We have this in verse 23, which is one of these phrases that has stuck in my mind from the book of Jude forever. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. I love that. I don't know why. It's dramatic. The word itself actually has connotations of violence to it. Snatching them out of the fire. And surely... If you knew somebody being consumed by fire in a house being burned by fire, you might not have time to be gentle. (laughs) Knock on the door, arm around the shoulder, leading them out. You might have to throw them over your shoulder and toss them out a window, snatching them, if necessary, from the fire. Now, these are people among us who Jude is talking to believers here, brothers and sisters, but for one reason or another, they have been caught up and led away into sin, and they're in danger. And so the verb, snatching them from the fire, the command, is very appropriate. You know, the church's power and the, and, the, and the believer's power to aid a brother is often merely declarative. But there are some times when these words need to be strong. And there's sometimes when our commitment to go after them and to go after them and to go after them again needs to be stronger than just the normal, sorry, you're struggling, have a nice day. Snatching them from the fire, fire implies violence. It implies pursuit. It means to go after them. It says to save them, snatching them from the fire. Now, we are not the Savior. The Lord Jesus himself is the Savior of all his people, but yet we have been given this task to be ministers of salvation by the declaration of the gospel. And sometimes the application of the gospel in an individual's life is a, is a harsh rebuke. Sometimes, sometimes it's a firm warning. Sometimes it's in the form of an official church discipline. But even in that process, the goal is to turn them back. It is a snatching from the fire. It is a pulling back from the edge. And so there are some who doubt, and we may treat with gentleness. But then there are some who are simply caught up, and they just need a good dose of someone coming after them and bringing them back into the fold. 
And so that is your responsibility to the people behind door number two. Now, I had a great aunt. Her name was Blanche. And her husband, Keith, we called him Zeke. I have no idea where you get Zeke from Keith. But that was his name. And they were ministers on staff with Teen Challenge for many, many years. And if you don't know, Teen Challenge is a ministry that goes into the inner cities and deals with drug addicts and and gang members and stuff. And to meet my great uncle and aunt, you would not have guessed that. Very mild-mannered, but committed. Committed. I just remember stories growing up. I only met them a couple times. I just remember stories growing up of them living as missionaries here in the States because they had to raise their own funds and yet living on popcorn for two weeks at a time because they had no money. But yet they had a passion to snatch some of these kids out of the fire. I remember stories of my great aunt Blanche who would go into the inner cities And she would chase down some of the ladies who had been involved in the program who had relapsed. And she would walk right into the brothels in Minner City, Chicago, if necessary, snatching them from the fire one by one. And that's an interesting picture. That's a good picture for us this morning. There are some who need encouragement. There are some who need rescued. There are some who will not take just a life preserver but need you to dive in after them and go pull them out. That is group number two. Number three... Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and in some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Here we are, mercy with fear. Now this could be one of the previous groups. It could be a third group of people because the warning really here is to you. Because do not underestimate the seriousness and the deceptiveness and the attractive nature of the sin you find your brother or sister in. And so there is a warning here. That we are to, while going after the person, we are yet to guard ourselves against the sin we find them in, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Do not think, just because they claim they've got it all together, or they claim they're happy in their situation, don't let that convince you that the sin they're in is attractive, because the end of it is death. And you are called to go after them, yes, but you are called to guard yourself hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Guard yourself, but go after him anyway. Now, we come to the final verses, verses 22 to 24 and 25, and again we have to deal with some grammar issues. Now, I had a preaching class a long, long time ago, and they say, don't bring your homework into the pulpit. But this stuff is fascinating to me. In order to understand the passage correctly, you sometimes have to understand why they did what they did or why they put it the way they did. Like Dr. Futado constantly tells us, you know, we're told not to repeat things. But for a Hebrew writer, you're saying, repeat it so they'll know what you're talking about. Well, Greek has its own little system of doing things. And what they will do is they will play with the word order. Okay, so we would normally have a sentence where we have the subject. We talk about Bill, the verb, ran to the store. Um, We have a subject, a verb, we have an object, direct object, all those things. Um, For those of you who are out of school for the summer, I'm sure you've heard enough now. But what's important in Greek is that they will play with that word order. Because in their minds, they can straighten all that out. That doesn't matter. But they will put front... What is the emphasis? What is the most important? And so when we come to verse 24 and 25, the subject, the nouns of your verse is actually almost to the end of verse 25. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And that little verb be there, which is not in the text, it's implied, it's needed by the text, that would come next and then would be followed by everything that comes, you know, beginning in verse 24. 
It would normally be that way. But they shoved it up front to get your attention to say, this is what we want you to hear. Because in the Christian life, in spite of instruction, in spite of the means of grace given by a gracious God, in spite of one another looking out for one another, we still fail. We still fall short. We still find ourselves struggling. And so what is being done here is things are being attributed to God. Characteristics, abilities are being attributed to God. And they put it front in the sentence so that you can see it. So that when you come to the end of yourself, you realize it had very little to do with yourself in the first place. Because ultimately it depends on the Lord who has saved you. So when he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... Right off the bat, what do we learn about God? Him, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Despite your best efforts, you mess up. But he is able to keep you from stumbling, and he is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. This picture here, this make you stand in the presence of his glory, is the throne room. The throne room. You know, in the Holy of Holies, it was meant to be a copy on earth of the throne room in heaven. And on earth, that was just the footstool of God. But what it points to is the throne room itself, whose pictures we see in places like the book of Revelation, where we see him seated on the throne, and around him, living creatures, and around him in concentric circles, 24 elders, and then around him, multitudes, and then around all that, a sea of glass. And you hear sounds of thunder, and you hear lightning striking, Because of him who sits on the throne. This is an amazing, overwhelming, glorious scene. And nobody can come there who is not blameless. The holiness of the God who sits on the throne is such that even the living creatures around the throne veil their eyes because they cannot look on his perfectness. And yet, he is able to make us stand in the presence of his glory blameless, which is the only way to get in, blameless, and even with joy, because perfect love casts out all fear. And so we stand in the presence of God with no guilt, no fear, no shame, blameless, and even with great joy. And all this is ascribed to him who is able. So when we come to the end of ourself, we find out we need to rely on him, which is where we should have started in the first place. Yes, be active, not passive, not lazy. Be active in your pursuit. But our reliance is upon the Lord because it is him who is able. And so we end where we started this morning because we end up with the worship of God. The one who is able to keep you from stumbling. The one who is able to make you stand in his literal, physical, amazing, glorious, terrifying presence. And yet blameless with great joy. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is he who qualifies us so that we can be counted as blameless. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Many times the worship of God is nothing more than attributing back to him what is true of him. And that's where Jude ends up. He says, all glory which belongs to God. All majesty, which is his. All power, which is the right to rule. All dominion, which is the ability to rule. All these things which are true of God, our job is simply to declare it and to offer it back up to him as worship because he is the one who is able to keep you 
And it ends with this phrase, before all time and now and forever. And I think it says it a little bit differently in the, in the ESV that we have in the, in the pews. But before all time, now and forever. Before all time. That's eternity past. Now is in the present. And then literally it says again, for all time. So from the beginning to the end, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority is to be ascribed to him. He is to be recognized for who he is. He is to be turned to. He is to be relied upon because he himself and only him is able to keep you, to make you stand. What he has begun in you, he will finish and he will bring you to himself in his throne room in great glory. And your faith will be sight. And it will all be worth it. So lift up your faces, people of God, and hope in him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the means which you have given us that we might know you more. Lord, give us the heart to pursue you more. And Lord, when we just cannot go on, when we find ourselves struggling in doubts, I pray, Lord, that you would then lift up our faces and cause us to look to you. Give us a glimpse of your glory. Give us a hope for the future. And give us faith that we might rest and find solace there. And now, Lord, strengthen us one more time as we worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.